How's everyone doing today? Can you hear me? Is that good? All right. Sweet. We're going to get started. Just a few things. Welcome uh, to our, this is our third Zerb Soapbox in our new headquarters. So I want to thank you all for uh, coming out and bearing with the uh, bits of traffic outside. I know it was a little difficult to get around here, but I appreciate you making it out. Uh, we do have, his, we have a hashtag for those of you that are tweeting live, uh, Zerb Soapbox, and both our Twitter handles, uh, Michelle's and myself, on either side, you know, we, we properly position that to where we're going to sit. We plan this. <laughs> it's production value. I just want to start with a little introduction. On September 12, 2001, the world changed, or the day after the world changed. Michelle Dennedy looked at her then newborn daughter and made a vow to protect her. That framed her work as a champion of privacy in the products that we use. In the past, she said that Facebook and Google are poster children for problems in privacy and big data, but that there's also a bigger opportunity. I want to get into all of that, but please give a warm welcome to Michelle Dennedy, Chief Privacy Officer and VP at McAfee. Thank you, Michelle, for, uh, for making it all the way out to little Campbell, California. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, you got me all worked up and misty-eyed now. Oh, Started well, off I'm going like, to get you a little bit more misty-eyed. I like this it. Is, okay. This is like the Oprah show. You're gonna, like we're going to get you to cry, <laughs> reveal Mama. a little secrets, you know. Right. I have no secrets. <laughs> but I, I do want to talk about that moment because on September 11th, the world did change. It affected all of us, the nation, the country, the world. Yep. And each of us have more, li more than likely our own personal story around that. Now, your moment came almost the day after. You know, you're, like I said in the intro, you were looking at your newborn daughter. What was it in those days and in that moment that shaped your almost never-ending battle the for quest. privacy? Yes, your quest. Yeah, so it is a little emotional because some of the people that were there with me are in the audience. Um, so it was a moment for all of us, right? Everyone here remembers exactly where they were and what they were doing. Um, but when you're obsessed with data, as much as we are and were at the time, it takes on a really interesting cast. Now, I, I lived in New York uh, right after college. I moved to New York, so, um, and I lived with a woman who was at uh, Kenner Fitzgerald. So the minute the very first plane hit, I knew I'd lost at least a dozen, if, if not more, friends who were, who were there at the time. Um, so there, there was that element. Um, I'd also booked my mom, who lives in Princeton, New Jersey, on Flight 93. Uh, to come out and help us with the new baby. And thankfully, timing and not architecture, um, my daughter was late, as she always is now, that she's almost 12. <laughs> and so I called my mom and I said, you know, don't come on the Tuesday, mom. Why don't you come on the Friday and uh, don't come on September 11th? And so mm -hmm. she is very much alive, nagging me happily um, from New Jersey to this day. But so there was all those elements in my personal life. Um, there was the, the difficulty of tracking people down. So all of my New York friends, that, especially the ones that work downtown, it was a frenzy of you don't want to call because you want them to get to their families, but you want to call because you're desperate to know who's still alive. And yet you're sitting here in California, and it's paradise. Sunny, perfect days. You know, everyone's just kind of shell-shocked, not knowing what to do or think. And then enter our boss, Scott McNeely, and Larry Ellison, who got on um, and said, all right, 
privacy is dead now. Let's just all agree, privacy is gone. We have to have a, a centralized database to get the bad guys. We need to give all our data to the government, and the government will figure this all out. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> so um, where's Jonathan Fox? There he is. So Jonathan uh, Fox, who was my chief of staff at Sun Microsystems and came back for more pain at McAfee, um, and Jay was there as well on our team. We called each other the next day and we said, can you hear what Scott's saying about privacy? Um, you know, we sell Java, which has garbage collection and all these other inherent security features. We sell Solaris. We have, at that point, we had started building clouds and calling them networks. Um, we, we have Whit Diffie two doors down from our office and doing encryption. How in the hell can we say that we have given up on infrastructure, that we've given up on human beings, that we've given up on, on identity. Um, so what are we going to do? Um, and, and that's where really we coalesced, and we put together a business plan to actually have a business unit at Sun Microsystems at that time. And, and that framing and that architecture of that framing is really what leads us now that we're at McAfee to not just write policies, um, but to build fabric and build culture and build passion and build architecture and engineering behind human rights and, and still be able to be a corporate citizen because you have a lot of advocates on this side and then you have technology and there's some sort of like an, a detente and agreement that corporate can't meet human rights and I think that's absolutely bullshit and just needs to be taken off the table. Are we allowed to swear in this session? <laughs> Feel free at all. You're, 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 you've used the lightest curse words of any sort of soapbox. Oh, I'm just dance. getting warmed up. Uh-oh. I figured a soapbox oh, would no. be soap in the mouth by the end of the session. Yeah. Um, once again, the hashtag is Zerb Soapbox. <laughs> Attribute it to this See? Twitter. <laughs> encryption. Brute force encryption. But uh, it, it's interesting that you, you say that it you know, the, there's not really this separation of corporate and human rights. Uh, what are what were some of those actual challenges back then, and how do they compare to the challenges today? What's interesting, I think I think the challenges are are very similar. Actually, mm -hmm. I think we still are a little bit slaves to the technology itself, and we design our business plans and we think about what can possibly be mm -hmm. based on things like bandwidth. Um, encryption in 2000 and 2001 was not as easy and ubiquitous as it was now. We certainly, we, we barely had um, basic encryption and, and certainly didn't even think about 256. Mm -hmm. And now we're there and, and we have enough um, fat pipes to do it. We also didn't have platforms that talked together terribly well. And mm -hmm. so we decided that safety looked like dumping it into one platform. And oh, by the way, let's get the cheapest and the most security whole vulnerability laden. Mm. So we, we made all these weird, ironic choices based on the technology rather than peeling back and having a data-centric architecture. And I think that, um, that issue and that lack of leadership at the board level, at the kind mm. of at the seat of power demanding a person-level architecture is still a hole today. You don't mm. hear a lot of this outside of audit committees at the board of these companies. Right. right. And, and even and in those days too, you know, cloud computing in itself was brand new, and you kind of were spearheading that effort at Sun. You know, what was it there that was the big product privacy issues, and how does that kind of inform how we approach it today? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, um, and and we knew when when cloud went from time sharing to 
network.com to grid to now the, the marketing mm -hmm. term of cloud, it was security and privacy were always going to be that Achilles heel for data. People always want to own stuff. And even if people don't think they have a privacy problem because mm -hmm. they equate it with secrecy rather mm -hmm. than authorized, fair, studied, authenticated use, mm -hmm. um, which is the real definition of privacy. It's much bigger and broader and richer than people think it is. Um, even if you think you just have an intellectual property mm -hmm. issue and you, and you put that on a cloud, there's the who owns it, who wants to steal it, who wants to leverage it, who do you want to sell mm -hmm. it to. Whenever you have a who, you have a privacy issue. And mm -hmm. I think the breakdown comes from, yes, we can stick things in giant buckets of storage. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can encrypt them, but they also need to travel to a who. And we haven't mm -hmm. figured out the who. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's not so much because I think when most people think about privacy, they think about, they think about protecting ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. CYA, right? Right. They, they, we, they, we think more in those terms of privacy. We don't really think of it as privacy for what we're transmitting out or privacy for what, how we are protecting our customers. And has, have those concerns really changed all that much no. from those days today? No. How so? I think, well, I think we, we have foundation of definition deficit, mm -hmm. if you will. Because what we're doing right now, this is privacy. We have decided to come together. We've decided to communicate and have a conversation mm -hmm. with. Right. We have authorized, fair, appropriate, proportionate sharing of information. Mm -hmm. That's privacy. And, and as long as we think about privacy as something that you either sometimes get to have or that it strictly is seclusion or hiding away or some dirty little secret, you're never going to code to that. You're never going to plan for that. You're never going to have a business plan based on that. You might have a, an advocacy group mm -hmm. on that, but you won't really have this thing that turns into currency. And, and I think as soon as you talk about privacy and currency in one sentence, you get this automatic reaction, particularly in Europe, um, where, where people kind of rear back and go, wait a minute, I'm not for sale. And you mm -hmm. think, well, but think about the medical profession. Like what is mm -hmm. more core to your corporal life here on the planet, right? But you do pay for drugs, and you do pay companies to develop them, and you do mm -hmm. pay doctors an extraordinary amount of money to, to come and have a specialty. Why don't we have that same relationship to data about people, where mm -hmm. we do pay for all of the gears, the people, the process, the technology, and the education? Mm -hmm. you know, why don't we pay for more people, more common people, to go to DC and demand our rights to have a privacy law on the federal level? Mm -hmm. There's only a couple voices in DC, and it's, it's the corporates, and it's the very, very edge advocates. Right, and is it, who would you say is, are they fighting for in the corporate or are they fighting against it? So we're fighting for a comprehensive law mm -hmm. because it makes our lives easier. Mm -hmm. It makes our lives more efficient than having these, these crazy patchwork quilt of sectoral mm -hmm. laws. And if you're already following those sectoral laws, basically being governed by Europe um, mm -hmm. and other um, international entities, um, it makes it cheaper. Mm -hmm. If we have a federal law, if you're if you're a small player and you're not playing at all right now, you might not be very happy about that. But your voice isn't being heard in D.C. about that either. And and how would a comprehensive law help people like kind of on the front lines, the product designers, the people who are actually considering, you know, how they build their products? And especially when you have companies like a Google where they have platforms across many channels. Absolutely. You know, how how do they take that into consideration? So. When you walk into an engineer's office, and I use engineering very, very broadly from code slingers to yeah. architects to designers, every, everyone in between, 
Um, so I mean it comprehensively as a maker or a creator, mm -hmm. if you will. And you walk into one of these guys and you go, I need to have a system. It's going to be a retail system. Um, so there'll be quite a bit of payment data. There'll be preference data. All of this will be marketable by all sorts of third parties swirling around. And I need to own this stuff. And there's going to be a little shizzle of, of IP in there. And, you, and you, all of those are requirements that a maker can write down and go, okay, mm -hmm. I get it, I get it, I get it. Then you come in with your privacy requirement and go, can I have reasonable security? And I need to have proportionate access of data. And I need um, to know that the data elements are in use only for a certain mm -hmm. period of time. And as soon as they're no longer in use, then you get rid of them. None of those are really requirements. Mm -hmm. Those are kind of aspirations. So what we need to do is get down that trellis. And I think laws help you get there. Mm -hmm. But I'd much rather see it come organically from maker designs and requirements mm -hmm. and, and engineering standards. Mm -hmm. um, lawyers are, uh, lawyers and, and uh, legislators are notoriously bad at translating into requirements. But mm -hmm. if that's the forcing function, that's the forcing function. And without that, what is it that uh, the frontline product designers can think about, especially when you have like, you can sign in by your email, you can sign in by Facebook, Twitter, I don't know, maybe one day we'll sign in with Instagram, or, you know, or what, whatever, you know, right? Yeah. What about those considerations? How do they account for that? Because all of those are avenues for something to go wrong or to leak out. Well, so, so this is the half full, half empty conversation. So mm -hmm. they're all avenues to leak out, but they're also ways of authenticating in. So if you think about the fair processing principles, and these go back into the 1960s, so they didn't necessarily contemplate all of the variants of technology today, but neither did Brandeis when he wrote in 1890 about Kodaking or the, the privacy intrusion of people being able to stand around on the street and maybe catch a glimpse of a woman's ankle. Ooh, now we can barely get Kim Kardashian's ass off of our screen. <laughs> it's like, poor Brandeis, if he only knew. So, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan Riddle, Ryan Riddle. Um, yeah, we just have to make sure we cover all of George Carlin's swears. I don't know if anyone's right. the seven, the old seven enough words here you to can't know. Yeah. say on television. Okay, yeah. yeah, there you go. <laughs> There's no FCC in this room. <laughs> I can't remember what was the question I was answering. When you have Facebook and Twitter oh, and all yes. those things. Oh, yes. Okay. Sorry. Game back on again. Um, so when you have all of these different avenues, what you do is you go through the fair processing principles mm -hmm. and, and you break them down into what does fairness mean. Well, fairness, it turns out, can be articulated. It can't necessarily be quantified, but it can be articulated. Mm -hmm. People don't want to be surprised. So what is the element of not surprising people? Well, telling people about stuff is important. So if you're going to use one of these, these venues for authentication, like a Facebook or an Instagram, mm -hmm. tell them that that's what you're using. Now, the difficulty is when you're dependent on a third-party source mm -hmm. for that sort of authentication, you're kind of at the mercy of how they're doing mm -hmm. their policies and how they're being transparent or not. So knowing that, you think, okay, I'm going to go for this kind of cheap route of an existing social platform as some sort of an authenticator. And then you look at the data object that you're trying to protect. How sensitive is it? How serious is it? Is it about the level of this kind of throwaway sharing that you're doing on Facebook? Okay, well then my compensating controls for the knowing weakness of my authentication channel can be a little bit lighter. If it's a very serious something, um, and I'll use, I'll, I'll use a McAfee thing, this won't be a, a product pitch thing because I don't know our catalog well enough, quite honestly at all. <laughs> but that said, we do have a nifty little thing called Social Protection. It's a free app. 
So if you're on, you're on Facebook, and I'll say Denise, uh, Denise, I want to show you a picture of my daughter. I don't really like to share a lot of pictures of my kids on Facebook, uh, but I can. I have done. I have downloaded social protection, and it's not an encryption, but it's a it's an obfuscation of a photo. So what happens is she downloads it. I direct it to her. Everyone else on my Facebook feed sees a blurry picture. She sees it in the clear, because it's that much level. My policy for that type of data that I'm sharing is that much higher. If it's just a picture of a birthday cake or, or Jason's pictures of her garden, right? Beautiful flowers. The flowers don't have a heck of a lot of privacy. So she'll send those out in the clear. <laughs> well, I don't know. The, pro the, the flowers may disagree. You know? Yeah, the flowers <laughs> may disagree. So any animal people here, I'm sorry. <laughs> Vegetable people. I don't even know what those called. But, or pagans, I guess. Yeah. Um, I always thought I was a pagan, but I guess not. <laughs> But that's one of those things. And so when you go down that step of fair processing, you know, fairness of, of who's collecting what, is it proportionate? Am I, am I asking you your waist size to, to serve you a hamburger? Right. Well, there might be some nefarious data processing going on behind the scenes. It's like that old ACLU video where the guy calls up and orders a pepperoni pizza. Have you guys seen this? Oh, search on pizza delivery, ACLU, when you get back to your desk. They did this great thing where it's a mocked up call, and the guy's like, hi, I'd like to order a pepperoni pizza. And she's like, oh, I see that your cholesterol is quite high. And whoop, I see you're going to Hawaii. And whoa, your weight is way too high. And so at the end of the day, this poor schmuck gets like a tofu, like gluten-free, like sad pizza, you know. <laughs> So it shows you like this, like, huh, why did he take my waist size when he ordered my Big Mac? So proportionality, <laughs> in, literally and figuratively, I guess, is, is really important when you think about data. And then finally, I think, um, who here knows, knows who invented the light bulb, at least on paper? Not a trick question. Thank you. See, one voice. Everyone knew the answer, one voice. Um, but you're absolutely right. Now, who invented the off switch? I don't know either. And I've been, you know, I've been asking that question actually for years. One day I'm going to get curious enough and I'll actually find out. Technologists don't like to turn stuff off. People don't usually get vice presidency titles because they turned stuff off, which is a shame because the off switch is actually the key to the Industrial Revolution. Not the on switch. That, that fucking thing burnt everything down. <laughs> Sorry, that was like, bam. <laughs> I went down to like number seven on the list. He's like he's got his bingo card out. God, oh, man. Someone actually, somebody actually took the time after a talk I gave once with a handwritten note that said like curse words are are the tool of the uninformed or something. I was like, well then you sit up here, whatever. <laughs> but it's but it's true, right? The right. off switch, the control switch, the authentication switches. These are sexy little critters that actually let you innovate on top of the mm -hmm. platform. It was cool that you had indoor illumination, but if you couldn't control it and you had an unlimited heating source, you also couldn't read at night, you couldn't have shift work, you couldn't have factories at on and on and on, and yet we don't even know who, who invented that thing. It probably was Edison himself, which will really take the wind out of my sails. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Now, just for the record, I did not say gas cock. <laughs> Zerb soapbox. Ryan Riddle. 
Ryan Riddle, it's like a superhero. It's delicious. <laughs> I love it. Ironically, yes, I am a comic book lover. <laughs> uh, but but speaking of uh, the, you know the fate, yeah, which of the <laughs> I, lost, I lost track after, after Gascock. I lost track of the questions. <laughs> it's like ah, there that goes. Uh, but uh, to, to kind of to take it back a little bit back to Facebook and, and Twitter and and all that authentication in your privacy by design talk. At least the one I saw didn't have as many curse words, but maybe I'm watching the wrong one. Because we're in person. Uh, <laughs> it's all just us. <laughs> but uh, you mentioned that uh, Facebook and Google are poster children. Uh, I'm going to get in so much trouble. They're huge customers. <laughs> Use them all the time. We love them so much. For, for some of the problems in privacy. But you follow that up by saying there's an even bigger opportunity. And I, I wanted to know if you could just elaborate a little bit on that and what is it actually that they get so wrong or have gotten wrong. Yeah, so I think that, I think there's a few things they've got. Now, I don't work for either company, so I don't know what's going on in their business behind closed doors. Oh. However, I've been around the valley a long time, and so I have an idea about what's going on over there. I think the interesting thing is, um, first talking to a, a terrific guy um, who has passed away, unfortunately, his name is Dr. Rajiv Matwani. Now, he was the one who invited the boys over for dinner when they were, um, working on their PhDs, uh, the Google boys, that is. Um, and he invited Andy Bechtelsheim, who's the founder of Sun Microsystems and other companies in the Valley. And he's kind of a human computer. If you've ever met Andy, he, he doesn't have like a human interface. He's kind of like a, like a doesn't really, not, non-compatible. But he's very, very smart. And he's one of the most brilliant designers of all time. So he just sat in the, at the dinner, as he does. And at the end of the dinner, he handed um, Sergey Brin, a check that said, um, you know, to the order of Google Incorporated for $100,000. And, and they had to actually take 30 days, scramble, find an attorney and incorporate so they could cash his check. And that was the very first money that Google ever got. So all that backstory is Rajiv was there. It was his house. And so I was talking to Rajiv back in the day about the opportunity of Google. And at the time, I was a patent litigator. Um, and, and so they, in my mind, had two issues. One was intellectual property, and the other was privacy. And they totally disagreed with me. They really viewed the world, and probably still do, um, that information truly wanted to be, quote unquote, free. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy when you're a postdoc to feel that way. Right? I mean, your pizza, you like wander around like scarfing conference rooms for pizza. And like, your life is just different. You don't really own anything. They aren't billionaires. You know, they aren't getting world governments knocking on their doors. And they're not the subject of every data regulator on the planet screaming at them for their mishandling of personal data. But at the time, and the philosophy was an innocent one, I think. And I think it is out of innocence and naivete rather than evil. But I think that the thought that information wants to be free neglects 3,000 years of history of people who actually want to own stuff mm -hmm. and who want to have control over their reputation. I mean, people have died over the, the thought that their daughter had stepped out before marriage, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So the reputation is very, very powerful. I think when we ignore history and we only look at machines, we go very, very south. I think that's the fundamental problem with both of those, those companies. And I use them both extensively. Mm -hmm. It's ironic how many privacy people are on Facebook shamelessly like, wow, can you believe privacy? Why can't anyone listen to us at work? Oh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> on Facebook, send, <laughs> tra-la, <laughs> you know. But I think, it's, I think they've kind of lost the mark. I think the system and, and the sharing 
they get, the protection, the controls, the management, the ownership, the sense mm -hmm. of culture um, is not the same as when there were limited people on time sharing. And if you said bad things or did bad things, you were flamed and you had no more access. I mean, the punishment for violating privacy in the early days of computing was severe. You got no more time on a timeshare. See, he's nodding in the back. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. And viruses were things that everybody, they were the common enemy. And everyone got against them very quickly. So we don't have those controls yet in this world. Mm -hmm. But I think what we're seeing is because it's a machine-centric design mm -hmm. instead of a people-centric design, and it's an ad network-centric design, because that's the business. We are not their customers. We are their mm -hmm. inventory. And we must never forget that. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's the issue. Now, the lost opportunity is people actually are very, very attracted to being with other people in a very res respectful, responsible way. So I don't think that these companies are bad. I just think that there's, there's a new way of sharing. Um, and I think the interesting thing is, and we, and we have an online safety school program at McAfee, and it's wonderful to go in and actually talk to younger people from K through 12. Younger people want to protect their privacy. They want to control their secrets and their message and their brands. They want to have a weekend persona that's mm -hmm. a, maybe a little bit different than their daytime persona. Uh, they want to have a grandma persona. Um, and, and they're learning how to do that with the tools that they have now. It's a people-centric kind of organic happening that's happening. So that is my optimism about those systems. Mm -hmm. I think the customers are starting, the true customers, not the inventory, mm -hmm they're going to migrate off that platform as quickly as they can. If I, if I could port my friends off of Facebook right now, I really would. Not mm -hmm. because I dislike Facebook per se, but because I'd like to see a better platform that mm -hmm. I understood a little bit better. Mm -hmm. What is it about Facebook you don't understand? <laughs> Yeah. Do you want to, have you read their privacy policy? <laughs> Let's order some coffee, and we'll all read through the controls together, and we'll get you home by midnight. <laughs> No, I, I'm so mean. I hope there's, there's like Mark Zuckerberg hiding in the back, like with a machine gun. <laughs> no, no, no. Ryan Riddle. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll take that one. Uh, uh, no, but was it, this but the it, way you thought this talk was going to go? Uh, no. no. Uh, I, I don't know. I've lost track These of my These guys question. knew that's why they came. <laughs> I'm breaking a sweat. This no, is every day. <laughs> Isn't this sad? Come work for us at McAfee. We do this every day. Uh, <laughs> But, but I like what you said there. It's We have to think of privacy as a people-centric thing. It's almost as if we, we are designing for people, but we're also designing their privacy at the same time. Exactly. And that's the things that we have to, to keep in mind. And, and, and can social sharing platforms actually get better at that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think this is where the Zerbians come in. Right, so this is this is where I think it's really exciting to be talking to, to designers and makers and artists. Mm. We actually have three thousand years of humans rolling around on the planet. We have a lot of data. I mean, talk about big data. We have big data about how humans like to behave with each other and against each other and around each other. I think if you look at that data and you look at things like art and you look at things like pictures and music. So I'll give you an example. You know, if I say dun 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 dun, what does that bring to mind? Yeah, even the people who are way too young to be sitting in that movie theater. You all know what that is, exactly. Why do we open contracts and there's no score going, warranty, 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 you know, or this is where we're collecting data. <laughs> you know, there should be a score, right? Mm -hmm. For the dumbest show with the most obvious jokes, there's a laugh track. Mm -hmm. Why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we explaining complex technologies using 
pictures and art, comic books. Our privacy policy at MacFee.com is a comic book. That's why we all have our ninja shirts on. Because all the research says no one reads privacy policies. How many people in this room read one privacy policy this year? Okay, I'm very impressed. I just press agree whenever I have to update <laughs> okay. iTunes. That counts as reading. I said that I read. So I no, <laughs> that does not. You know, where's the ejector seat for privacy here? <laughs> but that's, yeah, I mean, yeah, if you want it as a soporific, it's a wonderful tool. So our privacy policy in words is 16 pages long, um, and I probably didn't include everything that all the regulators around the world. Mm -hmm. So when you look at an agreement, um, and it's not just a privacy policy, Part of it is, is buttocks covering, because I've already gone to the F-bomb. i got to go back up now. Um, <laughs> you know, it really is. It's required by the law. We have to cover the booty. You know, there's stuff you just have to say. She's, she's slowly making her way back down. I know. I'm going, no, no, booty. Booty's like a baby word. Not like booty call booty. Like, I'm going, like, booty. <laughs> that is Zerb Sopa. <laughs> Ryan Riddle. Ryan Riddle talks booty calls with Michelle Dennedy. My mother will be so proud. Um, I was going somewhere with that. Oh, so, um, so we have all these studies. That, so part of it is, you know, the vehicle is mm -hmm. a corporate protection mechanism, and that is a very serious goal. We really do want our businesses to be healthy and alive and not sued into oblivion. However, those policies really are also for the consumer and the user, and I think it is our imperative to communicate better. And so we, we saw these studies that no one reads policies, and so we thought, well, you know, there's the old adage of pictures worth a thousand words. Well, my, page, my thing is already 16 pages long, and I haven't even gotten to half the content, so what if I put pictures in there? We could have thousands of ideas and thousands of words mm -hmm. using a graphic novel, and that's, that's how we got hooked up with Zurb, and we have this partnership, and they drew our little ninjas for us for a privacy policy. Um, the next one we hope will be animated with music and, and you know, we have a little embedded video there, but I think that's where we need to go. Mm -hmm. I think we need to make the terms and conditions should not be a throwaway at the bottom of the page. They really are kind of why you've come to the party. Mm -hmm. And if they're not part of that central, we all understand what mm -hmm. we're doing, then I think it becomes very difficult for a social mm -hmm. network in, partic in particular to articulate all the ways that humans are going to interact. Mm -hmm. So I think we just need to move as, a, as users as well as in industry people to design using what we know about this 3,000 years of human. Awesome. It's a little idea. It's a little, 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 little we'll, idea. We'll get back to you next Wednesday. We'll be done. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but on that note, with 3,000 years of history, I want to open up to, to audience questions. I want you to... Thank you once I again. And, the, stirred the pot. Yeah. <laughs> I love that she stirred the pot, and I hope everyone tweeted it out. Uh, but I want to open it up to questions. Uh, Who would like to go first? Um, so uh, when you mentioned the graphic novel, um, I realized that like, we use infographics all the time to try to explain concepts better to people. And it sounds like that might be like a good sort of settling point. I'm not sure. But um, I guess the thing is, I then realize it takes the company a lot of effort to do that rather than just shove the privacy policy at the bottom. And it sounds like the best thing we can do is, is try to get the good companies to do that so that the bad companies sort of are shamed into doing it more, if nothing else. That's how I think, I think a lot of stuff does happen, right? I think the same is true. Like, we're looking at these Bangladeshi factories, right? We need really marquee, loud brands to step up and say, it's, you know, you're going to have to pay $7 for this T-shirt because I'm not going to murder women in Bangladesh. And that's, you know, and, that, and that's how this happens. So part of it was 
you know, again, the corporate side of me said, people don't realize that security is an ongoing transaction. We're constantly talking to your machine in the language of machine data. We are constantly looking at things like the IP address. And it, it really came into focus when I went to Paris and I talked to a staffer of a data regulation body. And she said, um, she said, oh, did you know, Michelle, there's a new piece of spyware. I was like, oh, new spyware? This is like exciting. This is what we do. What is it? The IP address. <laughs> and I thought, oh my god, this is the woman who's going to be regulating us. And she really, in her heart of hearts, thought that the, in, the IP address was a new piece of code that we had launched on. I said, no, no, that is the internet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and she had no idea. And I thought, you know, and no, through no fault of her own, she's an attorney by trade. She knows the regulations very well. She knows nothing about the technology. And I thought, oh, gosh, we need to educate our regulators as badly as we need to educate our users, right? And so that, that's where the, it, so it was both a self-protection model for us as well as our belief that we do need to lean forward as bigger companies and, and well-established companies to do that. Mr. Fox. And Zerb is quite good at this. See? Speaking of Zerb, we've got our chief instigator <laughs> on. The... <laughs> this is a simple one. What's the difference between a privacy policy and what is Zerb? And terms? Right. Yeah. People have terms and conditions. Yeah. So, what... so ours are, there's a huge difference. There's a massive difference. So sometimes privacy policies are inside the terms of use of the, of the site agreement or, or the EULA terms for the licensing agreements. But privacy policies are simply our terms for our use of data that's about people. No, I think there's attorneys who don't know the difference. It makes me want to drink in the morning. Are you kidding me? <laughs> more scared of privacy terms? I, I wish that businesses were scared about what they're saying about their own business. I think what typically happens is businesses do what they do. And then the amazing thing, when you go from private practice, when someone's paying you $500 an hour plus, you have a name. And they'll like, use your middle name and like your, you know, like my Catholic school catechism name. You know? When you come and join a company, suddenly it's like, Bob, Ryan, and legal. <laughs> <laughs> Who's in the meeting? Make sure legal's there. <laughs> And they try to call you in really late, and they'll do what they do, and they'll say, okay, put this in the terms. And then you go off as the lawyer, and you try to be a part of the business, and often it's quite late. And, I, and I'm, I'm only half joking. I think a lot of people think that either lawyers have some sort of magic elixir that suddenly makes bad ideas turn legal, or that they can trick us by not telling us until the last second, and we have to write some sort of magic terms and conditions. But often I think that's the relationship is that the lawyers are deemed kind of this like bionic crust around the, the corp. And then the corp is doing whatever it's doing in the interim. Where, where, where terms and conditions are really, really good is when you get in there early enough and you walk through an idea and you say, you know, what are all the things that can go right? 
and let's look at that in terms of the, the positive side of the value. And then let's look at all the things that can go wrong. And that's when you, bal that's when you balance you know, the data value or the, the business process value versus the risk. And that's what you should be able to articulate before you launch a business. I know. So that's probably 90% of people, right? Uh, just because they say, well, there's a legal doc, I'll just use that one. So probably propagate yourself. Is there any resources for people on the open source side to help people figure out how to do this without necessarily? There are. Uh, an attorney? Well, so I'm going to recommend to you that you use an attorney. It's money well spent. I really will. Yeah. No, I know. I, I know you guys do. I'm just saying in general. The, the ephemeral you. Um, it is money well spent. Um, so I've got a couple vectors in my head. So let's go with the VC vector first. So um, it is my belief. So the, the VCs are getting more sophisticated about having like a CIO on loan or a sales startup on loan. I think they're going to start to get better and better at getting uh, governance people, security and privacy people on loan for, for very small startups. It depends on what your business is. But if your business is you're, you're writing apps, or you're creating a very data-centric system, um, understanding what that data corpus is goes beyond your legal risk. It's so core to your business. I've seen so many businesses sell themselves as a widget when what they really are is this amazing like cloud gateway data assessment tool. But they think they're a widget. It's because they haven't sat down and thought about what is the data corpus. Let's think about data as cash. And there's no company, even if there's two people that's too small, to think about what it is that they do and why is it differentiated in the marketplace. And if they haven't done that thinking, then they really don't deserve any funding. right? So there are policy generators is the other side of the brain that was thinking. There are privacy generators out there. I don't know them off the top of my head. Even I hire lawyers. I don't even write the policy myself anymore uh, because I have to write a global policy. That's the other thing I think people really need to know and understand is if you've got .com after whatever it is you're doing, you're on a global stage. So you really have to think very carefully, what is your product? Is it, is it focused toward a certain sensitive group? You know, is it a financially motivated thing that you hope to sell to banks? Is it something directed to kids? Is it something that's healthcare? There's specialty rules and regs. It's not so complicated that you can't figure it out um, with some of the resources that are there online. There's a, there's a great site that's free called privacyassociation.org. It's the International Association of Privacy Professionals. And they actually offer quite cheap training as well. So you can mm -hmm. take like a day of training and, and get certified in privacy. You know, don't, don't walk around with your certification like you, you're like a cop now or you'll end up like Zimmerman. <laughs> but <laughs> but you'll, know the, you'll know the basic rules. Very good. We have time for one more question. Really Gentleman in the back had his hand up first. Yeah, he had the gas cock. He gets to say yeah, whatever he wants. <laughs> Get your hands off my gas cock. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Addresses where these data are coming from. And 
Yeah, so it's a great question. I think, I think even today, um, given the platforms we have, so I'm thinking of, I, I have a terrific friend, she's got a company called Wicker, W-I-C-K-R, and it's got, do you use Wicker? I love it. So you basically, you as the user, um, get to decide, you know, the other person has to have the Wicker app as well, um, and you decide when that message will time out. So I'll send something to Ryan, and I set the time up to five days, and it disappears. He has no control over that content. He can't forward it on. It's 256-bit encryption. There's photography. There's attachments. Um, it's, it's a neat little app. Right now, it's kind of a neat little app. So you take a neat little app like that, and you can have a handle and be relatively anonymous. And then you can use something like Tor or, or any of these other kind of obfuscation, anonymous-type um, browsing stuff. Um, that's how technical I am with stuff. So you, you can think about the technology and how you would string it together, but I think where you're starting from is the right place, which is imagine a world where we would want people to be anonymous because of X. And I guess the X in question mark in my mind in, in your scenario is, do we want these guys just to be able to freely access information that some source is putting up? Do you want them to be able to talk to each other in an anonymous fashion? Um, and I think that plays in a lot of different ways. In fact, just yesterday, I had a call from someone. Oh, look, it's my dad. Hi, dad, I'm here. Um, I'm not calling him back. <laughs> We're writing a book with my dad, and he's driving oh. us crazy. Um, <laughs> What's the book? Ryan. Uh, it's called Privacy well, Engineering. You said, You're going to love mom, it. Well, if you said mom, you could have definitely figured that out. <laughs> um, yeah, it's called Privacy Engineering. It's coming out hopefully at the end of this year. Knock on wood, if we get it written. Um, but anyway, I got a call just uh, yesterday or the day before, similar type of scenario, except that the, the X question was, very senior executives don't have a lot of social networking ability, and they're very closely examined. They are very public figures, and everything that they say can have a billion-dollar consequence. So to have a system like that for them, um, I think would be really valuable for governance overall. And so that was the question that was posited to me. Could you do that sort of thing for executives where they could say, mm -hmm. we're considering using a new SEC treatment. Has anyone else done this? Who's a good lawyer? Who sucks? Whatever. And then have this timeout capability where the question would only be up there unattributed mm -hmm. for X amount of time. You know, there are all sorts of reasons to have private sharing. But I don't think everything goes into that bucket. And I think that's where we've fallen down in the kind of hardcore security black hat communities is we have this belief that everyone wants encrypted email all the time. Mm -hmm. I only use my Wicker stuff to use my very potty mouth, obviously limited vocabulary, right? <laughs> my day mail, I, I do my day mail. But, and I use my snarky, funny stuff on my Wicker mail. It's not every day that I need encrypted email. And I think that's where we have fallen down, is you don't always need everything to be encrypted. We were talking earlier about you know, what would a network be like. Um, but you do need a lot. If, it, if it's not going to be protected to a very high level, you do need to have that thoughtfulness of going in with the business mm -hmm. proposition in mind and thinking through and scenario testing those things. Because I think that's where some of these companies that have turned into massive companies, they really didn't scenario test. Right. What if a billion people were online at once? You know, what if they were all tweeting about a revolution? What if they were all lying about that revolution? You know, they lied about Obama getting blown up one day and the stock market plummeted. You know, that's a huge problem. That's a crime, you know, and that's, and the information war, so we'll end on like a really dark note. 
the information wars are coming, right? You don't have to throw a bomb anymore. You can upset a stock market. You can um, say that the food supply is poisoned. You can subvert traffic um, to a, a power plant, all virtually. That's, that's a pretty stark thought. So I think that one of the other passions of mine is really getting geeky, getting into STEAM, which is STEM plus art, uh, very young, getting, getting people excited about cy being a cyber warrior, whether you're a business person or a lawyer mm -hmm. or, or you know, a taxidermist or a gas and forensics, gas cock knowing guy. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's an exciting time. You should put time. that on a business card. <laughs> <laughs> Ask me about gas cocks. <laughs> I love that story. Awesome. Just don't turn it. And it's such a simple solution. Just don't turn it back this way, and you can't turn it back on again. Awesome. Do you have time to take one more question? Absolutely. Right. I think one I'm on a question, roll here. Because I know this young lady's <laughs> raised her hand like three times already. So how do you compare Facebook to diaspora? I don't even know diaspora. Oh, good people don't tell you that's all. I need to check it out. I don't know. I will know. <laughs> I like it. Awesome. OK, one more full question, and that's our last question. So, so I'm feeling bad. Like I, I don't work for Facebook. <laughs> so and I, I don't plan any of their strategic planning or whatever. But the ba the basic business model, and it's not it, it's not a judgment on them. It really isn't. It, if you look at what their 10K is, they are a publicly traded company now. They are run on advertising. Hmm. So who do you need to please when your revenue source comes from? That's their customer. And so it's not it's not a judgment to say that I'm not their customer. I don't pay them anything. If they change their model, I think there's an estimate like for Google or Facebook, if we each paid 50 bucks a year, we could ha be ad free. But they would then have to market to us and make sure we kept paying that $50 annuity every single mm -hmm. year for that free search. And suddenly, it'd be really easy to switch off to other free searching, right? So the advertising model, I, I don't say that as a point of judgment. I mean, you really do have to follow the money in many cases to figure out what is their business model and how are they going to have to behave to continue to survive. And they have to keep feeding that beast or coming up with a new model for revenue. Very good. That's awesome. an even darker thought than cyber uh, warfare. I, I, was trying to, I was trying to end it on a little hope. Ryan Riddle. <laughs> <laughs> great. Well, thank you very much, Michelle. I appreciate thank you, you. making great. the trip. Very good.